The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good morning, church. Welcome to the 11 o'clock service. You are the less holy of the services because you didn't get up as early, apparently. Hey, I uh, just wanted to let you know, uh, before we get, get going on our study today, uh, there has been an addition uh, in the Ma- Martin household this weekend. Uh, we are now the proud parents of a beta fish in our home. Uh, we are... We, uh, it's just, the, the house is busting with excitement over this. Uh, we welcomed Skittles into our house uh, yesterday, and Skittles is a beta fish, and uh, she, I don't know how we know that, but she uh, is very cute. Uh, I, I did find out that Brenda was the other name on the table, and we just missed out on that, because I was really hoping for a Brenda, but you know, when a five-year-old names it a fish, it's going to be Skittles. Uh, but but uh, she will forever be known as Brenda to me. Uh, and I uh, just wanted to let you know that, uh, really to add a little levity to the beginning of our time together, because today is kind of a heavier sermon. So I just, you know, you can thank Brenda for that, okay? Uh, what I'd love for you to do is I'd love for you to open up your, your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. That's where we're going to be today. You can open a phone or a tablet. If you're online with us, you can just look to the left of your screen or right of your screen, and there's a little Bible place. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to spend our time, t- t- <coughs> excuse me, today. Um, and uh, let, me, let me start here as you're turning there. In the winter of 2003, uh, my grandpa, or as he was known to me, I I called him Pap-Pap, Pap-Pap died in the winter of 2003. And I had never visited uh, Pittsburgh, the city where he uh, lived his whole life. I'd never visited there during the winter months of the year. I had been there every single summer growing up as a, as a child. Uh, so I'd spend a month there every single summer, but I'd never been there in the colder months of the year during the winter. And uh, it seemed as we flew into Pittsburgh, like the weather fit, fit the occasion. If you've ever been on the East Coast uh, during winter, it was, I mean, it's freezing cold, okay, really kind of gray and cloudy. And then the night before the funeral, uh, it snowed, this heavy kind of wet Pittsburgh. It's almost like ice snow. I'd never seen anything like it being here in Colorado. Um, and, and then the, the morning, uh, there was this white blanket that covered everything, covered the ground, covered the trees. All the trees are hanging low and bowing low. Uh, and it was clean and it was pure and it was pristine, uh, essentially like not paying due respect to what our day was going to cover, which was death. Um, and then it, at that day, I, I honestly had never seen a dead body before. And the first time you see a corpse is a, it's a shocking thing. Okay. Because I, it was an open casket funeral. So I went to the front of this funeral parlor and, and there was Pat Pap laying in a, in a coffin. Um, but it wasn't him. Like it, it was, if you've seen a corpse, you know, it looks like that person, but it also doesn't. Uh, and I and I touched his hand and I touched his face and it was cold and it was it was very different. And I learned things that week about Pap Pap. Uh, Pap Pap, uh, when he was a young man, he w- worked in the steel steel mills in, in Pittsburgh and had been called away to fight in World War II. I had never known that. Um, when the uniformed officers. Uh, came in for the, the kind of military part of the funeral, a bugler played taps. 
And my dad, who uh, was a career army man himself, I saw him weep. I'd never seen that before. And then uh, they closed the lid of the casket. And my brother and myself and my uncles and my cousins, we all put on white gloves and we walked to the front of the cathedral and we picked up the box where Pap Pap was and we walked him out to a long vehicle, slid the casket in where he was then driven to the cemetery and we buried him in, a, in the frozen Pennsylvania ground, winter of 2003. On the way back from the funeral, um, questions began to come to my mind. Okay, questions that I did not find myself with any kind of adequate answers about. Because you see, I'd, I'd only been a Christian for like a year or two at that point. I was very new. I didn't know much about God or about the Bible. I had just kind of started following Christ. And so the questions were, okay, so where is Pap Pap now? Like, I mean, I, I know we just... I just saw his body. I touched his hand. I, put, I saw us put him in the casket and then into the hole in the ground. And I saw them lower that box down. But, but where is he? Right? Like, is he in that box? Is he gone? Or is he in a place that I think I believed in called heaven? And if he is in this place that I thought I believed in, what part of him was there? Like what part of him is in heaven? And by the way, where is heaven? And what about that corpse that we just bought buried? Like what is, what happens with that thing? And if heaven is actually real, how do I even know that he made it there and not the other place? See, I didn't have uh, answers for these questions at that point. And I'm I'm guessing that many of us have similar questions. I'm guessing that many of us have similar questions. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find the longest treatment in the entire New Testament on what happens after we die. 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest treatment in the New Testament on what happens after we die. Here's the problem. Paul never talks about heaven. Heaven is not mentioned once in this chapter. So what do we do with that? Well, I'm hopeful that Paul has some good instructions for us. I actually talked to a theologian this week on the phone about 1 Corinthians 15 because I had some questions about some weird stuff that we'll get into. And he said that he thinks that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the most important chapter that the apostle Paul wrote in the entire New Testament. And I'm beginning to be inclined to agree with him. So uh, what we just saw on the screens uh, and on your your screen at home was Amy reading uh, uh, from from verses 1 through 11, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if you do remember, if you were with us, which I don't expect you to to remember, but if you do, I preached uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 on Easter this year. I preached the beginning part of this on Easter. So you can always go back and relive uh, that gem of a you know, quarantine web sermon anytime you want. It's all online, okay? But, but I wanted that read over us this morning before we jump into the second uh, section of this chapter because Paul reminds the Corinthian church of, and these are his words, what is of first importance? 
That's how he begins chapter 15. And we have to remember the context here because we've been walking through this book, this letter to the Corinthians all year. And what we've seen in the first 14 chapters are a church that's in shambles. The church at Corinth is a mess. They are divided over all sorts of issues in the church. Their sexual ethics are all out of whack. I mean, it is just, it's disturbing at some level. The issues of rights and freedoms, they're battling, they're bickering, they're infighting in this church. And then the last eight weeks or so, we talked about Paul's critique of their gathering points. When they did what we're doing, when they got together as a church on the Lord's day, Paul starts critiquing this. And then he also talks about specifically how people are gifted. And then we went into tongues and prophecy. I mean, it's been a weird few months here at Fathom, right? And, and, and now for the very last movement, as Paul is closing this book down, he starts with this. Here are the things that are of first importance. Everything else, okay, might be a secondary or a tertiary issue, but let me tell you what's of first importance and what he goes on to define as that thing is resurrection, The thing that is the most important is resurrection. And he begins, I think, to give us a glimpse of what happens after we die. So here we go. We're going to pick it up in verse 12 uh, today. Let's talk about resurrection. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. Let me give you the context here. Okay. Apparently in the church of Corinth, some of the church members are denying that there's a such thing as a resurrection. They're denying the fact that actual physical corporeal bodies are given life again by God and raised from the dead. Now, why are some of the people in Corinth believing this? Why are they proclaiming this? Well, because in their society, the idea of a resurrection, it didn't fit within their worldview. If you lived in first century Greco-Roman society, you wouldn't be thinking, hey, somebody's coming back from the dead. It just didn't happen. It didn't fit in their worldview. And we talked about this back in chapter six when we were dealing with sexual ethics in uh, the text here. But in the first century uh, church in Corinth and in the city of the Greco-Roman world, the dominant belief is, is, known, is what's known as dualism. Okay, dualism, we talked about this. And dualism, very simply put, I mean, you gotta kind of go back to freshman year of college in philosophy class, but there's a guy named Plato and Plato comes up with this philosophy that, that we call dualism, which essentially, they believe that there is an afterlife. Like they believe that after death, you move on to something, but, uh, and we might call that heaven, okay? But according to this view, humans are composed of essentially body and soul, two parts, dual parts, body and soul. The soul, okay, is good. The body, not so good. We want to shun the body and elevate the soul. And then at death, the mortal body is shed kind of like a snakeskin. We just shed that body. It goes into the ground and the immortal soul continues in a purely immaterial existence. That's basic dualism. That's dualistic philosophy. Now you might be just thinking, hey, isn't that what Christians believe? Right? Like, isn't that, it sounds like what I thought heaven was like when Pap Pap died. Right? Like his body is in the ground in Pittsburgh, but he's up in heaven with Jesus, right? Like in heaven, 
in this existence, right? Floating around on clouds with wings and a harp maybe, right? Like whatever popular version of that you want to put in your head. That's what I thought heaven was like. The problem is Paul never uses this language. Paul, the New Testament apostle, never uses this. He doesn't speak of heaven like that. He speaks of resurrection. And those are two different things. You see, biblically, when you die... there's this like temporary separation of your soul from your body. Uh, Your body does go back into the earth and your soul does go to the presence of God with rejoicing. And it's, I think it's apt to call that heaven. Like it's not, it's it's not that your, 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 your soul uh, just floats away and, and disappears. It's not that your soul moves into some immaterial afterlife for all of eternity, but for a season, it moves to maybe what we'll call heaven. Okay. Uh, But then the Bible talks about resurrection after heaven. And when you see the word resurrection in the Bible, it always means a physical body coming back from the dead. There are some modern theologians who will try and convince you that the resurrection is is a spiritual resurrection. No, nowhere in the Bible does the word resurrection ever show up outside of the context of a real physical human body coming back reanimated with life, that physical body is resurrected. So while heaven may be this temporary disembodied state, hear me, it's not the thing that will last. It's not eternal because resurrection follows after heaven. And it means you're back from the dead with an actual physical body. I mean, we saw this with Jesus. Jesus didn't come back as a spirit. He's not ghost Jesus, right? Remember, Jesus walked, he talked, he ate. People touched his physical body. He was resurrected. And this is why some in the church of Corinth are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. It's because they don't believe in that. It doesn't fit within their worldview. They believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but they think that was a one-off at best. They believe in life after death, like in this dualistic framework, but But the question is, what about after that? And Paul proposes that there's this thing called resurrection that comes after. One theologian put it like this. It's it's the life after life after death. It's the life after life after death. It's the life after heaven, we might say. So to say that Pap Pap is in heaven or uh, his spirit is is with God or he's in a better place now, like... Those are the things that I was saying. Those are the things that we were all saying at his funeral almost, you know, 20 years ago. It's correct. It's just not complete. And and as I said back in chapter six, okay, uh, often evangelical Christians believe far more like Plato than they do like Paul. We are so much more influenced by platonic thinking than we are biblical thinking. There is this disembodied reality after you die, which you can call heaven, but that's not the end. That's not the the eternal, okay? There is something more, and the Bible calls that resurrection. Now, Paul is going to go on, and he's going to at length treat resurrection as what it is, uh, which is uh, life after life after death, okay? So what we're going to see here is really Paul does two things. He, He takes the argument, and he says, hey, If there is no resurrection, here's the ramifications. 
Okay, if there's no resurrection, here's what's gonna happen. And then he takes the other side. He says, since there is a resurrection, here's the ramifications of that. So that's what we're gonna see, the two movements of this text. What if there is no resurrection? What are the ramifications? And then because there is a resurrection, what are the ramifications of that? Here we go, look at verse 13. This is, this is a dense sermon, y'all, so hang with me. There's payoff, I promise. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are, not, are, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, he says it again, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are uh, are of all people most to be pitied. Okay. Those verses Paul gives us I counted six consequences or ramifications if the resurrection is not true. Okay, six things. First, in verse 13, if the resurrection is not true, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay, what he's saying there is the very gospel that we preach falls apart. Okay, the gospel, the gospel message, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hear me, these are non-negotiable doctrines. This is the first importance that Paul is talking about. These are not debatable issues. If you do not believe that Jesus actually lived, actually died, and physically actually rose from the dead, then hear me, this is gonna sound harsh, but hear me, you are not a Christian by any definition of historical Orthodox Christianity. These are of first importance. To quote one commentator I read this week, everything stands or falls on the truth of the assertion that God raised Christ from the dead. Everything. Everything. That's the first consequence. Second, in verse 14, he says, your faith is vain. And here's what he means by that. If the core belief of the resurrection falls then everything else that we're building our faith on falls apart as well. If the foundation, the resurrection of Jesus, if that's not there, you're building on something that will not last. And Jesus clearly teaches in uh, the gospels that it's not the amount of faith that you have that's important. Remember this in the gospels? Uh, he says that you can have faith as small as a mustard seed. So the amount of your faith could be as small as a tiny little seed. And yet that doesn't matter because the thing that's important is not how much faith you have, but the thing in which you put your faith. You can have the tiniest little seed of faith, but if you put it in something that's strong and that's real and that's assured, then you're going to be okay. And if the gospel is a hoax and you're putting, whether it's a mustard seed or a huge mountain worth of faith in that gospel, that is a hoax. It's in vain. Paul says you should be pitied. Third, if the resurrection is false, then the trustworthiness of the apostles 
all the way up to today is shattered. Essentially, this thing's a lie. Right? Like if the apostles preached that Jesus rose from the dead when in fact he didn't, they're liars. And this book that we hold as authoritative is also built on lies. If he did not rise, if he did not rise. Fourth, verse 17, you are still in your sins. That's the fourth thing he says. If Jesus was not raised, your sins are not paid for and you are still damned. Like, I mean, Jesus' resurrection enables us, as as Paul says in the book of Colossians, to walk in the newness of life. If he doesn't rise, if none of that's true, then hear me, we're still dead in our sins. Why? Because he's still dead in the tomb. Fifth, uh, he says that those who have fallen asleep are gone. Those who are, have died are just gone. He uses that euphemism uh, Jesus, uh, that, that Jesus uses. They, they fall asleep. You'll see this all through the Bible. Uh, if you remember John chapter 11, okay, with the story of Jesus and his friend Lazarus, uh, before he calls Lazarus back from the tomb, this is what he says. I'll put it up on the screen. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, which is kind of like, it's one of those moments where I just picture Jesus like, really? You need me to make it this clear? Okay, here we go. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. See, I think the reason why Jesus and then Paul later picks up on this euphemism of of falling asleep is because there's hope of of awakening. There's a hope when you die of resurrection. But if there is no resurrection, then they aren't sleeping. Listen to me. If there is no resurrection, then Pap-Pap is gone. Like gone. Another commentator I said, uh, I read said this, um, no one wants to think that their relatives have kidded themselves in this life and are now rotting. So if there is no resurrection, the dead are dead. And then finally, sixth, if there is no resurrection, he says at the very end of that bit, all hope is gone. All hope is just gone. If Christ is not raised, then our hope is nothing more than a fairy tale. Listen, you'd be just as fine putting your hope in the Easter bunny or the tooth fairy. For all the good it does you to put your hope and trust in Christ, you may, if there's no resurrection, you may as well just put your hope in whatever else you want. The cross, as they said in chapter one, is foolishness. It's complete folly. Hope is gone. Joy is gone. All that's left is nihilism and despair. Nothing matters except right here, right now. Tomorrow we might die. See the argument that Paul is making here? Do you, I mean, that's, this is what he's, he's hammering home. Everything hinges on the resurrection of the dead. 
everything hinges on this. Now, the next verse is Paul's going to hit the argument from the other side. He's not going to say, hey, uh, what happens if the resurrection isn't true? Now he's going to say, what happens because the resurrection is true? What are the ramifications going forward? Well, look at verse 20. I love this verse. But in fact, and first of all, thank the Lord for buts in the Bible. Am I right? But, like that's the kind of but you want to read about in the Bible. But, if the resurrection is false, all this bad stuff happens. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Praise the Lord for the buts in the Bible. It's a fact. The resurrection is true because a resurrection has already occurred. Christ has been raised from the dead. And the first ramification of that fact is in that verse. Paul calls Jesus the first fruits. He calls them the first fruits, which is a common illustration in the Old Testament and on into the Greco-Roman world. So let, here's my illustration of this, okay? Uh, we might not think about first fruits a lot, but uh, at my last house, uh, before I moved into my new house, we had two big apple trees in our backyard. Okay, in our backyard, moved in, two big apple trees. At first, I moved in, I'm like, this is going to be awesome. I'd never had fruit trees growing up, so I just thought, an apple tree means awesomeness for me. Like, I love apples, we can eat apples anytime. If I want an apple, I just go outside, pick that. Oh yeah, man. I spend so much money on apples. Now I'm going to be rich, right? I, I thought this is going to be great. We're going to eat them, bake them into pies, make applesauce. This is going to be awesome. I was dead wrong. If you have apple trees, you know this, okay? Uh, and, and listen, it was like, I remember the first, the first summer, it was like torture waiting for these apples, right? Because in the spring, the tree flowers and it's beautiful, like white and pink. And I mean, it's awesome as it flowers. And then all of a sudden, as the summer starts, these dinky little green apples start showing up, hanging. And at first they're so small that you're like, oh man, this better not be a crab apple tree. If I bought a crab apple tree, I'm going to be really ticked, right? But uh, they, they keep growing and they, they get bigger as the summer goes on. And then early fall, they, they're green and you're tempted, but you know they're going to be terrible. So you just like leave them there. And then where the sun hits the apples, they start going red. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And then finally, like end of September, October, like right now, apples begin to ripen on the tree. And I, man, the first apples were red, the first fruits we're ready. And I remember going out there, picking that first apple off my tree, the first fruits and eating it. And I was like, yes. Like I remember picking it, eating it. I was like, I am a farmer. Chris McDonald had a farm in the suburbs. Like I was pumped. Okay. But first fruits are always just that first fruits, the first What I didn't realize about my apple crusade is that very quickly, hundreds upon hundreds of apples would start falling into my yard. And then, uh, listen, if I didn't get them in time, they would hit the ground and it's like instantaneously they would turn into rot. Like they would start to smell, they would get soft, there would be worms. And every single week I'd have to drag a trash can out to my apple tree before I started mowing my yard. And I'd fill up half of a trash can with apples. Worst uh, on, on that, I'd let my dog out into our fenced backyard in suburbia where I thought that she would be safe, only to find out that she sprints away from me, finds apples, starts munching on them with like juice dripping down her jowls, staring at me, and I can't get her back inside. 
She's just eating apples, staring at me, you know, just mocking me. And then if I forgot or if I missed a couple of apples and I'm mowing my, my lawn, and if I hit an apple, it would shoot apple gunk all over the wall. I mean, all over the fence. Every, I mean, just it shot apples everywhere. It got out of hand. So then we bought our new house. Two years ago, we bought our new house. First thing we noticed, there's a huge apple tree in the front yard. Okay. So uh, we closed on a Thursday, cut that thing down on Friday. It was like, no, we're not doing this anymore. We are done with fruit-bearing trees. Jesus is the first fruits. And what that means is that there's more fruit to come. He's the first to be resurrected, but there is more fruit to come. Resurrection is not something that only occurred once with God raising Jesus from the dead. No, it says he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The good news of the gospel is that you're a piece of fruit that has fallen asleep and one day you will awaken. Resurrection. There's more fruit to come. He emphasizes this in verses 21 and 22. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come life. Or uh, I'm sorry, by, uh, so also, oh goodness, this is one of those days. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Sometimes they just like to throw words backwards on this version. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Essentially what he's saying there is if you are in Christ, Just like if you are in Adam, you all die. If you are in Christ, resurrection awaits you. Christ's resurrection, it's not merely this isolated occurrence. You will be made alive. So that's the first ramification of the good news that the resurrection is true. But here's the second. It shows up in verses 23 and 24. He goes on, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, there's that word again. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The second consequence of the resurrection being true is that Christ's resurrection sets into motion a series of events that culminate in his second coming. Theologians call this, it sets into motion the end times. So we are living in the end times. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of the end times. We live there. Okay, he is the first fruits, but then it says he's coming back for those who belong to Christ. We call this the general resurrection. When Christ returns and the souls of believers are reunited with their bodies, their bodies raised from the dead, and and they will live within Christ eternally. But it's a physical resurrection. And then the text says, then comes the end. So, So follow the train of thought here. Life then death, then we might say heaven, a soul in paradise with Christ, joyful, but that heaven then is followed by resurrection. And then after resurrection, that's when the end comes. And it's not really the end, it's really the beginning. Christians often talk about living with God forever, right? 
God, uh, God oh, we're going to live with God forever, eternal life. But this reality, uh, it's called many different things in the Bible. It's just never called heaven. Living with God forever is just never, it's never referred to as heaven. Paul just called this the kingdom. At that point, at the end, Jesus is going to hand the kingdom fully inaugurated over to God the Father. The kingdom has actually come at that moment. Pro- the prophet Isaiah, uh, apostle Peter, and the apostle John, they call the end uh, the new heavens and the new earth. That's their language for it. And then Jesus, in, in the gospels, he calls it the age to come, uh, or sometimes he calls it eternal life. Eternal life. But what we find here is that at the end, at the very end, after our resurrection, okay, Jesus' resurrection, he re- excuse me, he returns and our resurrection. And then after that, he destroys every rule, every authority, every power. All of the enemies are God, of God. Uh, they will be overcome. And that's the end, a new heaven and a new earth. He goes on uh, into a really confusing part, which is classic Paul, verse 25. For he must reign, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected, subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Is that clear? Is that clear? That's, I, I have no idea what he's saying. Um, Here's, here's what I think he's saying there. I think it's all summed up actually in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Everything, all the powers, all the principalities, all the rulers, they will be destroyed. They will be put under Christ's rule and reign. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now hear me, death is not the end. But death does have an end. It is not the end, but it will come to an end. And, and listen, we get this, okay? Like, um, there is coming a day. There is coming a day when your body will have aged to the point where you don't want to be alive anymore. It's, it's just true. For most of us, this isn't on our radar very often. We're not thinking about this constantly. And listen, I know I'm a young man. I can already sometimes feel it though. Like you ever just wake up from a night of sleep and you like get up and you're like, whoa, oh wow, right? And you're like, how did I injure myself while I was unconscious, right? I just slept. I actually slept pretty well, I thought, until I got up and I was like, man, I'm hurting myself sleeping, right? The Bible is very clear, specifically in the book of Ecclesiastes, that there is coming a day where if you live long enough, you will not want to be alive anymore. Eat as many blueberries and superfoods and salmon as you want. Work out, do CrossFit. I mean, do whatever you want. Drink your kombucha. I don't care. Smells like feet to me. I don't want it, okay? You do whatever you think is right and good to steward the body that God has given you. But hear me, you're on borrowed time. And, and listen, if I'd have to guess, you've probably already had days where you felt that regardless of your age. You ever been so sick that you think you're dying? 
And it feels in that moment that you're like, God, I'm okay. You just take me. Whether it's real or not, you ever feel that? Hear me on this. You ever had such an awful emotional pain or experience where you'd just be fine if God took you home to glory? And now hear me, you're going to get there. If you haven't gotten there yet, you're going to get there, okay? Mortality rate, even before coronavirus, was hovering right around 100%. You're going to get there. But the scriptures just told us that death is not the end. Death is not the end. You will be raised. And then it says, even death will be destroyed. We sing that song, Death in His Grave. The Lord Jesus Christ put death in his grave. What vivid imagery that death can't even stand the presence of Christ to the point where it itself is destroyed. Now, in verses 29 and 34, I, I don't have time to read these, but what Paul does is he really reflects what he did verses, in verses 12 through 19, where essentially he takes another angle and he says, hey, just one more time, just in case you didn't get it. If the resurrection is not true, let me just give you some more ramifications. And then he talks about this weird little passage where he says, uh, why, why would people baptize the, on behalf of the dead? if the resurrection is not true. Now, the reality is this. Nobody knows what the heck he's talking about right there. Like, I'm serious. Nobody has a, has a beeline on it. Here's what I think the best, it makes the most sense to me, is that essentially he's like, hey, if some of you are baptizing people on behalf of the dead, like trying to make sure that they're okay, he's like, if the resurrection doesn't happen, who cares? They're already dead. You don't need to worry about them. He uses these rhetorical arguments and then ends by saying that, listen, if there's no resurrection at all, then self-indulgence and overindulgence, they're legitimate. Like, why not just become a hedonist? And he says the famous line, eat, drink, and be merry. Because, because dead is dead. If there's no, resurre no resurrection of the dead, just do whatever you want. Today is all that matters. So let's lay in the plan. Uh, wow, land the plane. It's a good day to be alive. What, uh, why is this important? Why is this of first importance? Uh, well, I think it's fitting because it seems like death has been a central topic of this year. 2020 has been a year that we might categorize as one a bit obsessed with death. And with death and disease and fear and anxiety on everybody's brain, like everybody's front burner, everybody's coffee shop conversations, I think we as Christ followers need a, a, a much more robust theology than, well, he's in a better place now. Like, listen, that was not satisfying to me when Pap Pap died, and that will not satisfy your neighbors, your friends, or this world when death is all-encompassing. Christian, your hope is not in heaven. Your hope is in resurrection. And if the resurrection isn't true, then my Pap Pap is still in Pittsburgh in the ground. And, and if the resurrection isn't true, then any faith or hope that you may have in Christ is foolish. You are to be pitied. And, and if the resurrection isn't true, then funerals really are a bleak affair and that's it. 
Paps was the last song and Pap Pap is done. But I think 1 Corinthians 15 paints a different picture. Because Jesus was raised, you can't have faith in him. Because Jesus was raised, the Bible can be trusted. Because Jesus was raised, our sins can be forgiven. Because Jesus was raised, those who died in Christ will be made alive in resurrection. And because Jesus was raised, we have hope. We have hope to leave this room, put our masks back on, get out of here and face death because it's not the end. So what happens when we die? Well, it's temporary. That's the best news. That's the best news, y'all. It's temporary. It is a temporary separation of your soul from your body your body in the earth, your soul in paradise with Christ, disembodied, but God will not leave our dead bodies in the earth forever. One day you will be reunited with your body, resurrected, and you will live eternally with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. What will that be like? What's that body like? That's next week's text. Thank you, Paul, for answering that question because I want to know. But let me leave you with this question. If you are a Christian here today, online with us in person, if you believe in Christ, you have put your faith and hope and trust in Christ, the question I have for you is this. Are you living as if death has the last word? Are you living as if death is actually the end? I think a lot of Christians function that way. Eat, drink, and be merry because you don't know what's going to happen next. But Paul just said, it's a fact. Christ was raised and so will you. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope, hear me, is not even in heaven. Our hope is that we will be raised with Christ and all things will be put right. And even death will be put in the ground. Death's the only one who gets stuck in the ground in Pittsburgh and stays there. I don't know what that means theologically, but I like it, okay? Christian, you have hope beyond this world, beyond death. Now, if you are not a Christian, hear me plead with you, okay? Let me just, if you're online, if you're with us and you do not not believe these things, let me just plead with you today, okay? There's, There's hope, There's hope beyond this world. Forgiveness is available to you. The hope of eternal life is available to you. It's not floating on the clouds with a white robe singing amazing grace for 10,000 years. That's not what this is. Death does not have to be the end to your story. You just have to submit and ask for forgiveness and repent. And then your hope can be in resurrection as well. It's available for you. If you want to talk to us about that, please, I'd love to chat with you. Let me end with these words. I want to read just Paul's words over us, and we're going to have the band come back up, and we're going to sing, and we're going to worship, and we're going to respond. But let me just end with these words. Maybe close your eyes. Maybe just listen to them and sit in the words that Paul has for you about the resurrection. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end 
And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, um, it's, it, it's good to be in such a heavy and heady text because what it reminds us is that this faith that we have, this, this religion that we are a part of, the, the, the following of Christ is not some shallow, meaningless thing, but it is deep and it is rich and it does provide answers and hope to some of life's most terrifying questions. And Lord, I do pray that, that if we have kind of a skewed, maybe JV view of what the afterlife is like, Lord, would you, would you take these, these, these teachings, these words from your servant, Paul, and, and just use them to deepen us in our, in our love. Give us a hope that, 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 that goes further than this life a hope that goes further than the next job or the next promotion or the next child or the, the retirement or, or the next house or whatever accolade or, or thing we might put our hope in. Lord, let our hope be in things that are eternal and not things that are temporal, not even in heaven. Lord, let our hope be in resurrection, in you putting all things back together, making all things new in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where our hope is, Father. Let us believe that all the more as long as today is the day. We love you, Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.